Good morning, everybody. So we are in a uh, in a series of lessons, and I think this might be the last one on uh, good news for a change. And I have been given the topic of the kingdom of God. This is not an easy subject. If I were to ask you, what is the kingdom of God? Why is it good news? And what difference does it really make? What change does it make? Would you have a clear answer? Also, in a crowd this large, would you think that we all had the same answer? Probably not. The kingdom of God is one of those things that gets talked about a lot in churches, I found, but it isn't always well understood. I'm going to do my best to try to help with that a little today. There's so much here to talk about. The problem is, is trying to narrow the focus enough to fit it into about a 40-minute slot. So I'm going to try to do my best with that. Uh, the other thing is that you can't explain all of it. So I'm going to try to show you some aspects. Now, I am fully prepared to probably tell you some things that you haven't heard before. Some of you may not have heard some of the things I'm going to suggest to you. Before you believe what I tell you, and hopefully before you reject what I tell you, that you'll be like the Bereans. You remember them in Acts? They were eager to hear what God had to say, but they weren't just going to swallow things hook, line, and sinker because somebody told them. They went back and looked at things in the Scripture and checked out to make sure if it really did make sense, if it really did ring true. So today, if I tell you something that you haven't heard before, before you just believe me or before you just reject me, I hope that you'll go back and look at it. And I've tried to give you a lot of different Scriptures. Okay, enough of a warning. Let's get into this. Matthew 4, 23. Now, this is very early on in Jesus' ministry. And it says here, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. When Jesus said this, now this, you can read, this, this sounds like, yeah, duh, there's nothing really startling about this verse, right? Jesus, as you read through the, the Gospels, you'll find out that at the heart of his ministry, at the heart of his message was the kingdom of God. In fact, all of his apostles, that was the main thing that they were talking about. A few years ago, I realized, I guess it was about ten years ago, I realized I had always thought I knew what the kingdom of God was, but I really didn't. I had a vague concept. Mostly I thought of it as the church. It was handed to me that way, and so I just sort of had my worldview sort of shaped for me in this regard by some other people. I also did the same thing with the gospel. I thought I knew what the gospel was. What I didn't know as I began to study, I began to find out that the gospel was always the gospel of the kingdom of God. This is a big deal. If you read through the scriptures, you find out we're supposed to preach the kingdom of God. We're supposed to pray for the kingdom of God to come. And we're supposed to pursue the kingdom of God. And yet most of us don't really understand what that really is. And if the gospel is all about the kingdom of God, how do we preach the gospel if we don't really understand it? Now, I will tell you this too. There are a lot of opinions on what the kingdom of God is. And they get shaped by all sorts of different things. Our goal here is to try and let the scripture shape our worldview, to shape our understanding. So I'm going to present to you some, some things that hopefully help you understand a little bit more about the kingdom of God, why it's good news, and what change it has made, what change it is making today, and ultimately what kind of a change it's going to make. Now, whenever Jesus preaches this, this message about the good news of the kingdom of God, 
the people didn't go, wow, a kingdom of what? Who's ever heard of such? No, the, the, actually, they had for generations been waiting and anticipating the coming of the kingdom of God. And just like many of us today, they thought they knew what that meant. In fact, there had been many guys that had stood up like Jesus and said, okay, it's time. I must be the guy that the prophets are talking about. Boys, grab your swords. Let's go to war and let's establish the kingdom of God. In fact, there was a guy, about the time that Jesus was 12 years old, there was a guy from Galilee named Judas who started another one of these rebellions. It ended badly for him too. The Romans didn't put up with that kind of stuff. And in fact, it's quite likely that Jesus got to see these rebels hanging on crosses as a boy. There's some insight. But he comes along, and he, while he's telling them a familiar message, something they've heard before, while he's claiming to be somebody that they've heard claim this before, he does something that they've never seen before. He heals. He does miracles. He heals every disease and every sickness. Why would he do that? I think maybe there's a couple of answers. One is to show that he had power to say the things that he was saying. I think another thing was to give people a little taste of what's coming. See, in their minds, they knew that the kingdom of God was going to be God setting things right. Setting things the way that they're supposed to be. But they had a worldview that defined what that would look like. And as Jesus went through his ministry, he tried to explain the kingdom of God. He tried to uh, give examples, say it's like this, it's like that. He taught about it. He tried to explain it to them. And yet so many people could not shake their preconceived notions of what the kingdom of God was. Many people even rejected him because what he was saying was so different. They kept expecting him to grab a sword. Even after he told them, you've got to love your enemies. He told them, you've got to love your enemies. Okay, when do we grab our swords? Right? How does that happen? Have you ever tried to tell somebody something, and no matter how you explained it or demonstrated it, they just, it, it just changed? You tell them something, they're going, yeah, uh-huh, 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 I get it, and then they go do the exact opposite? Is that a common experience? How does that happen? Why does that happen? You know, the apostles, as we were studying through Acts, whenever Paul and Barnabas, early on in their first missionary journey, they come to a place and they're telling the same story that Jesus is telling in this passage. They're preaching the same kingdom of God. A good creator who's setting things right, who's brought his kingdom to this earth for a function that is beyond our imagination, wonderful. And what do they do? There's a guy that, that's sick and they heal him. And what does the, the crowd of Gentiles do? That's got to be Zeus and Hermes. Let's have a pagan worship service here. Let's grab a, you know, something and kill it and have a sacrifice. How do you hear the gospel of the kingdom of God and Jesus as the king and all of a sudden think pagan religion, Zeus and Hermes? I think it happens this way. We have a worldview. Not all of us in this room share the exact same worldview, but as Americans, how do we view the world? Kind of with a sense of entitlement, isn't it? We expect to be able to pursue our pleasure. We expect freedom. We expect everybody to honor our rights and treat us a certain way. And so we filter a lot of our information to fit inside of our worldview. I think what happened with Paul with the Gentiles is they heard the gospel and they changed the gospel and shaved it and morphed it so it could fit into their worldview of multi-theism, polytheism, many gods. That wasn't unique to them. I think it still happens today. 
I think it happened to the Jews that Jesus was talking to. They had a worldview. And rather than changing their worldview to fit the gospel, they tried to change the gospel to fit their worldview. That is still the battle that goes on today. How do we change our worldview? By opening up our minds, laying aside our prejudice and our preconceived notions, and going back to the Word of God, humbly asking Him to show us, and being aware that we all have this issue at play. Okay, so now, if I'm going to try to help you understand the Word, the, the Kingdom of God, and why it's really good news, I'm going to have to give you the bigger picture. We're going to have to go back to Genesis. Now, first of all, I neglected to tell you this, the word gospel is good news. That's literally, you could, you're depending on what translation you're looking at, it'll either render it as gospel or good news. But I was surprised whenever I began studying this that that came from a specific Greek word, the euangelion. Have you looked at this word before? Heard it talked about? It was a unique word, but it didn't start out as having any kind of a religious flavor to it at all. It had a military flavor. Whenever a, a king or a Caesar or somebody marched into an area and won a battle and, and uh, conquered it, they would send out runners and messengers and envoys to share the euangelion, the good news. Sometimes they sent them back home where they came from. But they were also very interested in going to all the villages and towns in the area they just conquered to say, hey, you guys, uh, some good news. There's a new king. There's a new sheriff in town. You better switch loyalties. Whenever I found that out, it forced me to rethink what the good news, the gospel of the kingdom of God was all about. I think it's a much bigger, deeper, and more robust gospel than just, I don't have to go to hell. I get to go to heaven. And for most of us, that's the way that it's been handed to us. We have this truncated, shriveled idea of a gospel that's all about salvation going to heaven, leaving this earth. I don't think that's all there is to this gospel. And I think, as we understand the kingdom of God, it may come better into view for us. Okay, so, to put this in perspective, I think we've got to go back to the very beginning and look at the whole story. So, let's go back to Genesis. If you've got a Bible handy or it's in your notes, uh, I did something kind of different with the notes and the slides today. Because of space, I didn't quote everything in the verse. I may read everything in the verse, but I highlighted the things that I wanted to draw attention to. I did that mostly for space. So here we go, Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. How familiar is this passage to you guys? You've heard it probably plenty of times, probably read it several times. What I have found in 40 years of being a Christian is to study the Bible means to come with good questions. Good questions are a whole lot better than good answers. Good questions will get you seeking for the truth. You get a good answer and sometimes you stop. You stop looking at things. So let's ask some good questions of this passage. Because I think to understand why the kingdom of God is good news and how it fits into all this, we need to understand the big picture. So now, what was God up to when he said, let's make man in our image, in our likeness? 
what does it mean for Adam, from humanity, to be made in the image of God? Does it mean that he looks like me? He has flesh and fingers and all that kind of stuff? Have you ever asked this question before? What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Anybody want to take a shot at it? What's that? Free will is a part of it. Yeah. We're made to be image bearers. Whenever Caesar sent coins out around the empire, had his picture on it. You go into pagan temples, and there will be an idol there that represents that God. Ever wonder why God doesn't want us to make those kind of idols? Those kind of images? Because we are that. We are the representation of who he is. That's how he created us to be. But it's about his internal qualities. It's about his justice. God is ultimately just. It's about his mercy. Because he's infinitely merciful. It's about his faithfulness. Because he always tells the truth and he always does what he says he'll do. We were made in his image to reflect him and to look like him. And it comes down to reflecting his glory. When we read about glory in the Bible, glory is something that can be seen. It's something visual. We were made to reflect God's glory. Now, the other thing is, is why did God want us to reflect his glory? Did he just want little mirrors of himself all over the place? Well, he tells us why right here in this first part of this. He wants us to reflect his glory so that we may rule. As Christians, have you read the passage that says that we're supposed to reign with Christ, to rule with Christ? Have you ever asked what in the world that job description looks like? What does it mean to rule with him? I think there's a very good tie-in between this and the answer to that. See, to rule with God means that we have, God wanted to rule the earth through mankind. We were to reflect him, and that's how he was going to rule over all the earth. So how does reflecting God's glory allow mankind to rule for him? That's another good question, right? Well, I think I've got an illustration that might help us with it. We reflect God's glory and his righteous rule into the earth by reflecting him. I've got a beautiful assistant that's going to help me with this. God made us with a reflective quality, humankind. And by the way, you can see this all the time. It doesn't, it doesn't just pertain to reflecting God. Have you noticed how people want to imitate popular people? They dress like this one. They talk like that. Have you ever noticed that if you hang around with a certain group of people, you begin to talk like them and act like them? They say that married folks, after they've been married for a while, begin to look alike. My poor wife is... <laughs> she's... Bless her heart if that happens to her. Actually, what we're looking like is not so much physically, but she will finish my sentences now, and it's getting harder and harder for me to lie because she knows what I'm thinking. So that'll happen too to you guys that have been married for a while. Okay, so Chelsea, shine some light. Chelsea's got a flashlight. She's, I asked her to shine that in my eyes, which is very uncomfortable. Now, if I'm going to reflect, see what happens? I put this up where I'm looking, and see how I can direct the light where I'm going? So God created Adam to do this, to reflect his light and his glory into the world that he was in. Now, watch what happens whenever I get closer. As I begin to walk closer, what happens to the light? it gets stronger and brighter and bigger. The Christian life is described. God created us to be reflective, but he wants us to reflect him. And he has a purpose for us. That's how we're supposed to rule the earth. Whenever you go to work, 
How many people are reflecting God? Whenever you act with justice and mercy and faithfulness in that job, does it change people? It changes the environment, doesn't it? Light does that. But God wanted Adam and Eve to reflect his glory, his light into the world. And he had a mission. He had a reason for wanting to do this. Did you catch what the mission was? What was the mission? They were to fill the earth and subdue it. Okay, so God created Eden and it was just one place on the earth. Right? In fact, Genesis 2.10 says there was a river that flowed out of Eden that watered the garden. And then that went on out and watered the rest of the world. So there's Eden and there's the garden around it and there's a river that flows out of it. God intended for Eden to expand. God's ultimate mission was to fill the earth with image bearers. And it didn't happen. What went wrong? Why didn't Eden expand? Why were there not all these mirrored people angling and bringing God's glory into this world? What happened? You know this story. Satan, the serpent, the tree with the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. You know that story, right? But I want to back you up just a couple of verses to maybe shine a little bit of light on that too. If you look at Genesis 2.15 before the fall, it says there that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. And here was what he was supposed to do. He was supposed to work it and take care of it. The Hebrew words give us a little bit more insight. You, you realize that, I mean, I'm, not, I'm not some college professor that understands ancient languages, but you realize that words don't always have an exact equivalent from one language to the other. And sometimes what happens when we get a Bible translated into English for us, someone makes a decision, what is the best way to represent what is meant there? So there's a little bit of interpretation that's going on here. And different translations exist because not everybody can agree on them. I want to draw in on this word take care of, because this one I think has some significance. It's the Hebrew word shamar, and it means literally to guard. Like building a hedge to guard. So here's my question. What in the world did Adam and Eve need to guard the Garden of Eden from? Sin? Yeah, there was no sin in the world. Satan. Yeah, you see how the story goes, right? Satan was there. I don't know if I can prove this. You'll have to do your own thinking on it. But it seems to me that God didn't put Satan in the garden. Adam and Eve let him in. Because they failed to do what God had told them to do, what he had designed them to do. They failed to guard it. Interestingly enough about these two Hebrew words that make up this job description that God had for Adam, it's the same two words that you'll find that are passed on to the priests in the temple later on. They're supposed to serve the temple and to guard the temple. They even put priests at the gates. And the instructions were that if any unclean thing, man or animal, tries to get into the temple, you kill it. I think it gives us some insight into what Adam's function was to be. How was he supposed to guard the garden? Well, my guess is he was supposed to protect the word of God. And guess what the attack was that Satan used? Did God really say? And Eve, you, you know that she's not taking this guarding thing too seriously because she misquotes God. In a couple of different ways. 
One of the things that she does is she adds to what God said. Oh, we're not even supposed to touch that tree. God never said that. Eve becomes the first legalist. And whenever she gets talked into this and she takes it, Adam isn't out on the back 40 cultivating. Adam's standing there with her because she turns and hands it to him and he eats too. What happened with that? If we were in a pitch black cave, his job was to reflect the light of God into the garden and into the world around him everywhere he went. And this is going to happen by keeping and guarding the word of God. And he abdicated his job. He let Satan rule instead of him. He was supposed to subdue the serpent, but he let the serpent subdue him. He angled the mirror at something that was created rather than the creator. He listened to Satan. And what happens whenever a light source is cut off? It goes dark. Sin entered the world, and so did the dominion of darkness. God's creation was vandalized. It was vandalized and it was taken from him. And it's been dark ever since. And man lost his ability to reflect God. Lost his right to rule in God's name and gave it to something that only brings death. It's a bad deal, huh? But God, did God give up and say, that's it, I'm going to destroy it all now? I'm going to start off with something else? No, in Genesis 3, he says, listen, what you've done is going to cause this effect. And it's a curse that you've brought on yourselves. God wasn't arbitrary or mean-spirited. He didn't just decide to curse everybody because they disappointed him. You know, if you go out here and you run down the road and you're, you're driving too fast, they're going to give you a ticket and charge you money. That's an arbitrary fine to try to keep you in compliance. If you go around a hairpin curve on a mountainside at 100 mile an hour with bald tires in the rain, you're going to go off the cliff. It's a result. It's just going to happen whenever mankind abdicated their right to rule their design creator, the created design that they had, and instead worshipped something that was created, aimed their mirror at something that was created, the fall was the natural thing. Death came into this world, and it went dark. And God said, because of this, the man is cursed, and the woman is cursed, and creation is cursed. The earth is cursed. It's got a problem too, and he curses the Satan. He curses the serpent. But he didn't just stop with the curses. He makes a prophecy. And he says, the woman's going to have a kid. There's always going to be a war between Satan and humankind. But there's going to be one. And he's going to crush your head. And you're going to bruise his heel. That was vague. Thousands of years, they had no idea what God meant by that. But it did say this. He wasn't going to give up on what he had started. He wasn't going to let this stand. He was going to fix it. He was going to put it right. And they didn't know how this was going to happen. And things got darker. Things got worse. They began to have children who had children who were rotten. Rotten to the core. In fact, their firstborn son, Cain, turned out to be a murderer. And the first one to build a city. I don't know if there's a connection between those two. But I just know that, I mean, I'm not against building cities. I think that's fine. But you see that it got so dark that eventually God says, I can't take it anymore. This is so vandalized, so not what I had wanted to create. I'm going to destroy the earth. 
And he did destroy the earth. He destroyed it with a flood. The earth didn't go away. Remember, God said, I'm going to destroy the earth. He didn't mean I'm just going to wipe it all off and do away with it. But he drastically changed it. He made it a different place to live. It took him 40 days, 40 nights of rain. And he saved one family, Noah and his sons. And if you look at what God said to them whenever they get off the boat, he gives them the same commission that you see in Genesis 1, 26 to 28. He gives them the same commission. Be fruitful and multiply. God still wanted to fill the earth with his glory. And he still wanted to use people to do it. And how did that story turn out? Adam failed and sinned in a garden. Noah failed and sinned in a vineyard. And so God, did he give up? He didn't give up. This commission has been out there for mankind since Genesis 1. In fact, Jesus said, go into all the earth and make disciples. We call it the Great Commission. I think Genesis 1, 26-28 is the first Great Commission. And I think what Jesus had in mind in his Great Commission was the very same thing. But that's another point. You see this commission gets handed off to the patriarchs. And you see that it gets handed off ultimately to Israel. And God gives us a little bit more information about how he intends to set the world right and to bring back his vandalized and stolen creation and to bring light back into the world. And this is what he says in Exodus 19, verses 5 through 6. He says, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. By the way, that word keep, it's our Hebrew word shamar. If you'll guard my covenant. Covenants are like partnerships. God was looking for a partnership. He was looking for it out of Adam. He was looking for it here with Israel. And he says, you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be a kingdom of priests. A holy nation. This is the first passage where God mentions a kingdom. And he wants a kingdom of priests. What do priests do? They represent God to man and man to God. We're back to our mirror idea again. What a priest is supposed to do is reflect God's glory, his rule, his righteousness, his reign to people and reflect back the praises of all creation back to God. And God was going to fix this vandalized, broken world that's dominated by darkness by bringing a kingdom, a kingdom of image bearers, a kingdom of priests. Did it turn out that way? They failed too. Take me more time than what we've got this morning, but I could talk a little bit about how that happened. But you know what? It came back to the fact they didn't guard. They didn't guard the Word of God. They twisted it. They didn't obey His voice. They started listening to created things rather than the Creator. The reason I'm using that language is because that's the same language that you'll read about in Romans 1 where Paul describes what went wrong. He talks about the wrath of God. I know some of us are afraid of the wrath of God, but we think God's going to punish us for this or punish us for that. But Paul describes the wrath of God. You know what it is? It's whenever God gets out of your way and lets you do what you want to do and he stops trying to stop you. You can read that in the first chapter of Romans. You'll read it over and over again. All the even verses from 16 on. God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. Paul said you can see the wrath of God. This is what happens whenever God gives them over to their sinful lusts. Whenever you get so determined not to reflect God, but you want to reflect a created thing, eventually God quits trying to get you to angle the mirror. And guess what happens? More darkness, more separation, more vandalism, 
more pain for our God. Things were looking bleak. Because the world was covered in darkness and every attempt that God had made to give this responsibility to a man or to a group of people to bring his light and his glory into the world had failed. Satan looked like he had it all. But God sent word through his prophets, one of them in particular, Jeremiah, in chapter 23, verse 5. He said the days were coming when he would send a king who would set things right at last. All the prophets spoke about this. God was not going to give up on his creation. He had a plan. He was going to set it right. You know the plan. The plan is and was Jesus. And he came into the world and brought light. I want to show you, this is a longer passage, but I've got to show you this. It's in John 1. The Apostle John writes his gospel. This is how he starts his gospel. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. Doesn't that sound a lot like Genesis 1? Gary spent the last two weeks telling you that Jesus and his resurrection became a new creation. And in him we become a new creation. And I think we read that and hear that phrase so quickly that we forget that there was an original creation that got vandalized and dominated with sin and death. And God has started to create again. There is a new creation. He's doing it again. It's happening now. John goes on to say, he talks about John the Baptist. And how he was a witness to the light. In verse 9 he says, The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. There's that worldview. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of a natural descent, nor of a human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. We tend to think because of our American worldview of everything about being me. And whenever you hear forgiveness of sins, that Jesus has taken away sin, that he's forgiven sin, how many of you think that means that God's going to be okay with me now? In their generation, they thought of we. They thought more, I mean, it's true, me, but he thought about a group of people. Jesus' forgiving sins restored our vocation as image bearers. He made it possible for us again to do what God had always wanted mankind to do, to reflect his glory. It was impossible without Jesus. In this very dark world, a child is born. And it's just one little light. You ever been in a cave where they turn out all the lights? That's dark. Danny Gill would say that's dark as the inside of a cow. <laughs> I've never been inside a cow, but I can presume it's pretty dark. But I have been inside caves on tours where they kill all the lights, and it is so dark it's staggering. And if someone lights just one little match, the darkness falls away, and it's a staggering difference. When Jesus was born, he was born king. Matthew 2, 2. He was born king, and he brought light into this world. And John's talking about it, and John is excited. Can you feel, as you read John's description in this opening of his gospel, how excited he is? He's beside himself with the joy 
that light has been brought back in. Not only that, but he's allowed us to share in that light, not just to be light shined on us, but to reflect that light and be light ourselves. He finished up what he said there with, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. Remember, glory is always something that can be seen. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. This passage I just read to you is so dense, so full of important stuff, and I'm not touching most of it. But do you see how important light is? Did you catch that? I've got a little illustration I want to show you. you probably see that a lot better in your notes than you can up here on the screen. The Bible talks about two ages. It talks about the present evil age, and it talks about the age to come. You look back here on the left-hand side of this, you see God's original creation in the beginning. Not too deep into it, you see the fall of Adam. And what happens? The present age is born under the dominion of darkness. And it goes on and on and on. But then you see the promised age to come. But did you realize that they overlap? The new age began with the coming of Jesus in his first coming. At his resurrection, new creation started. He was the firstborn of this new creation. And what did he promise us? There was going to be a final and fuller realization of this. This present age is passing away. It's passing away, has been for the last 2,000 years, and one day we'll be done with this darkness. One day, God will restore what he started. He will finish his mission to dwell with man where there is no death, where there is no corruption, where there is no sin, where there's no darkness. But folks, we live in the last days. And this is one of these points where people wanted to, where Christians want to argue about this. The apostles said that they were living in the last days then. We still are now. We're living in the last days of a defeated enemy of the present age. The dominion of darkness has been defeated. You guys remember World War II? Well, maybe not remember. Um, I'm, I'm old. I wasn't there. <laughs> I was born afterwards. But if you've ever studied World War II, do you know what D-Day was all about? It was the Allied invasion of Europe. It started at Normandy, right? D-Day was the day that the enemy was defeated. That was the day that Nazi Germany was defeated. Because once they got a toehold into Europe, they weren't going to be stopped. Yet the fighting went on for another year until they got to V-Day, Victory Day. And that's when there was an ultimate surrender and it was over. What happened in between times? The Allied armies marched through France, liberating those who were held in bondage to Nazi Germany. Why am I telling you this? Because, folks, we are living in a war zone. We are living between D-Day and V-Day. Jesus was D-Day. His first coming, Satan was defeated. The enemy was fallen, but the fighting has not stopped. Even though he's a conquered foe, V-Day is still in the offing. And when Jesus comes back again, it'll be V-Day. And there will be an unconditional surrender. And God will set things finally and fully right. 
One of the hard concepts to really get my head around, and it may be difficult for you too, is that we live in an age that can be defined as now and not yet. Now and not yet. We have a deposit that guarantees that this is all going to happen. It's the Holy Spirit. How many of you guys own a home? Did you buy it outright or get a mortgage? Bank, okay, well, that was my question. Who really owns your home? You or the bank? Oh, well, now wait a second. Is the bank living there? Does the bank tell you what to do? It feels... Okay, once a month you're reminded who's in charge. But you also know that there will be a V-Day. D-Day was the day you signed that big stack of documents pledging a 30-year mortgage. But you knew that V-Day was coming when it would be finally and fully yours. But the reality is it's yours now, but it will be finally and fully yours whenever it's paid off. It's the best I can do with a working example of what we have in Christ. We have now, now, the kingdom of God. Now. We have light and life. Now. And we have a promise, a guarantee. You probably put down money to guarantee you were going to make all those payments, didn't you? God did the same. He guaranteed he's going to finish this project. He's given us an assurance of it. It's his Holy Spirit. V-Day is coming. But what are we supposed to be doing between D-Day and V-Day? The same thing that they were doing in Nazi Germany. We are supposed to be conquering, making new image bearers. Setting people free. I grew up, the worldview that was given to me is that once you become a Christian, you are to hang on and defend that faith and be faithful till you die so that you can get out of this earth and go live in a spiritual, untouchable existence that nobody understands, but will be far better than the other option, which is hell. That's what I was handed. And then I would look at Jesus saying, Peter, on this rock... I'm going to build my church, and guess what? The gates of hell will not prevail against my church. And I was thinking, yeah, those gates of hell, they can attack all they want. And then it dawned on me, gates don't attack anything. Gates are for defense, not offense. The church must be on offense. The church is an invasion force. The day that Jesus came, the revolution began. The day he came, the revolution began, and it's still going on. And we who believe have been made partners in this. Not everybody gets to work for God. Not everybody gets to be salt and light. Not everybody has gotten the chance to serve God and storm the gates of hell and bring the dead back to life. And that's what we've been given the forgiveness of sins restored our vocation and made us image bearers again to bring God's light into those dark places. Yeah. And all these scriptures in the Bible that talk about the Christian life, don't they talk about it being a walk? And a walk is just one intentional step after another going towards something. And as I showed you, as we walk towards Christ, what happens to the resemblance? It gets stronger and it gets brighter and it fills more of the room. And what we are doing between D-Day and V-Day is walking towards Christ and learning how to aim ourselves, fixing our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith to bring his light into this dark world. 
Every one of us gets to be a part of this. If you're not a Christian today, if this is new to you, if you're not on this team, don't leave today without it. Why would you live one more second under the dominion of darkness with somebody else determining your future? Somebody who wants to use you for evil and not for good. Someone that wants you to snuff out light rather than bring light. There is nobody that can't be on this team. There is nobody that can't be changed into an image bearer of God. You don't have to understand everything. You just got to believe that Jesus is raised from the dead and that he's really king. And if you believe that, I'll baptize you today. We'll study with you and show you the rest of the word as best we can over the rest of your life. But today is the day that salvation comes near if you're hearing this for the first time. Look at some of the things that are said. This is how Paul tried to, I think, get this very same message across in his ministry and his preaching. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. Now, Gary dealt a lot with 1 Corinthians 15 over the last two weeks because there's some amazing things that Paul says about resurrection and about the difference in the body that we have now and the body that we'll have then. But just after that, he makes this statement. He says, so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. Jesus is the last Adam. Why does Paul refer to him as the last Adam? Because God is continuing his mission. God is fixing it. God is setting it right. And he's brought about a faithful Adam that we can be a part of. He says the spiritual did not come first, but the natural. And after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the ground, but the second man is of heaven. As the earthly man was so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we, this is what I want to push on, just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, and we have, haven't we? Every one of us, if you are a Christian, there was a time whenever you were lost in your sins, and you were in darkness, and you were living an empty style of life with no real purpose. And even when you tried to do good, it would backfire. That's what it's like to be in the dark. I built a table, you know, a coffee table, big coffee table out of oak. I can't lift it. It's huge. And I have turned off the lights in my back room a few times and tried to make it out of the room. And that thing doesn't give an inch. And I get, I, I'm trying to do something good, get out of the room. But in darkness, I hit my shin and it hurts like a son of a gun. And I curse the day I made the table. The table isn't the problem. It's the darkness that's the problem. A lot of us wanted to be good, but we couldn't even figure out how to do it. We didn't even define good all that well. But when we wanted to do something that was right, it would backfire. Why? Because you lived in the kingdom of darkness, where you can't see what the problems are. And we bore the image of selfish, self-centered, self-serving Adam. Someone who had surrendered his God-given, his created ability to image God. And given authority that God had given him over to evil. We were all that. That's what we reflected in our lives. But Paul says, so now we will bear the image of the heavenly man. Just as we were reflecting Adam before in sin and failure, now God in his grace has removed the obstacle of sin and restored our vocation to be image bearers. To be partners with him in bringing the kingdom of light into this world. 2 Corinthians 3.18. I've got these in your notes. I'm not going to put them up on the screen because I thought that might take too much time. But all of these verses I'm going to show you come back to this diagram. Folks, 
the age to come is coming. We have some of it now. The rest is coming. The full and finality of it is yet to come whenever Jesus comes back. But listen how Paul talks about what we're supposed to be in between while we're in this war, between D-Day and V-Day, and what role you play. He says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all, with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory. That's about fixing your eyes on the glory of the Lord, on His light, right? We think about it. We contemplate on it. All of us who do that are being transformed. We're being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. It's that walk that we talked about. See, again, my worldview that I was given as a kid... I think it was James who said, if we are in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sins. And the way that it was handed to me in my worldview about the kingdom of God and all that we're talking about today was that the light had to be about a quarter of an inch wide. And it was so easy to stumble and fall out of the light. If I had a dirty thought, boom, I'm out. How do I stay in the light? And I was guilt-ridden. Because I thought it was about my performance and how good I could be. Anybody here deal with guilt? You want to know what kind of a good news the kingdom of God is and what it changes? It should do away with your guilt. Guilt is a wonderful short-term motivator. It is a horrible long-term motivator. See, as a preacher, I could sit up here and I could try and make you feel guilty about this lousy sound system. And try to get your arm up behind your back and coax you into giving money you didn't want to give. I mean, that's one example. I could use it to try to motivate you to stop doing horrible things by scaring you with hell. Anybody been the fire and brimstone type thing? Anybody ever had that? And did it get you to change some things? Did the change last? You try as a shepherd, as a Bible teacher, as a brother in Christ, if you're only tool to try to help people reflect the glory of God is guilt, they will eventually become so angry and disgusted and they will accuse God of being something that he never was. Some angry, mean God who's just waiting to fry us if we mess up. And you may conclude that I can never be good enough, so why even try? So why even try? Folks, the kingdom of God should take this guilt thing away. Because it's the wrong frame. It's not about how good we can be. It's about whose team we're going to be on. The light that that, that James talked about, about being in the light, is not a quarter of an inch wide. Whenever Chelsea was hitting me with that flashlight, I was in the light. Could I have fallen down and been in the light? Yeah. Because the light helps me to see where I'm going. And if I fall down, I'm just supposed to get back up and keep walking towards it. Not give up. That whole discussion about the, the natural body and the spiritual body, not everybody's going to agree with me on this. But I challenge you to do your own study. The natural body is soma sukekas in the Greek. The spiritual body is soma pneumatikas. Now, without trying to get into a big Greek lecture, which would be over my head too, soma always means body. Always means body. Their idea of anastasis Resurrection was always bodily resurrection. Most of the modern translations translate somesukekas as the natural body. Soma means body. Suke, psyche, 
is about how we think, how we feel, the natural man, that animal side of us, the sensual side of us. Kos is a suffix that gets put on the end of these words, which describes the power. that it is. It's like if I talked about a nuclear-powered submarine, you would realize that it's not a submarine made up of nuclears. It's a submarine, but it's powered by nuclear power as opposed to diesel and battery. This is the discussion that Paul's having there in, in 1 Corinthians 15 about our bodies. So may sukekos is a body that's powered by our natural desires, our selfishness, that animal part of us, that sensual part of us. And guess what? It is at total war with the spirit that God's put in you because it doesn't fit. And Paul goes on to elaborate about this in Romans 7. He says that what I want to do, I can't even do. Who's going to rescue me from this? And you guys can relate to that, right? And then Paul starts this interesting discussion about it's Jesus. Remember, Paul talks about some sukekos. He also follows it with some pneumatikos. Soma always means body. Pneuma is spirit. Kos is what drives. You're talking about a spirit-driven body. Folks, when we get to this new age, this age to come, in the resurrection, we will have a some pneumatikos. And what that means is all that stuff that embarrasses you and frustrates you and limits you in your ability to reflect God will be gone. Because you'll have a body that cooperates. A body that enables you to do the job that God has given us. Is this hard to believe? But it's what the gospel is all about. You can't take this out of the gospel and still have the gospel. Could you imagine living in a world that doesn't have corruption and death? In a body that allows you to be as good as you want to be. That allows you to worship God wholeheartedly without the selfishness. Without the sin. Without the competitiveness. Wouldn't that be wonderful? That's coming. Now imagine this. Everybody that's with you has the same kind of body. What would those relationships be like? When everybody loves God and they don't have the sinful nature. They don't have the, the, the flesh that holds them back, that craves all the selfishness and the competitiveness. Let that sink in. Because God is setting it right. That's what he's moving it towards. We have some of that now. And some of it not yet. Because we're living in a battlefield called the last days. But we're moving towards it. And have been for 2,000 years. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, God said, "Let light, uh, this is Paul again talking to the Corinthians. He said, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness. That's a direct allusion to the original creation. That's what he's referencing there. The God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. That's why we're called a new creation. It always begins with light, right? In the beginning, let there be light. John 1, he was the light of life. And God creates in us a new creation, and his light is meant to shine out of us because you're a new creation. It's not about how good you can be. It's not about whether you can earn it. This is based on faith, but it's a faith that moves you to walk towards Christ and to want to understand his word so that you can guard it. And it causes you to die to that selfish nature so that you can shine and reflect His glory into the world that's around you. Every one of us is on a mission. 
that mission, that dark place you go, maybe you may be there in an hour from now. It may be waiting on you tomorrow morning. It may be in your home. But you're on the battlefield. And God is taking you, and I don't even know how all he's going to use it. All I know is that somebody, somebody reflected God's glory to me whenever I was lost, when I was behind those gates. And I've been brought into the kingdom of the Son. It wasn't any fun. I was only 14, but I was getting kind of stupid. And I could see where that ball was rolling. And God interrupted that and set me on a better course. You guys can say the same thing. And there are people that are still lost. And we just need to reflect God's light in those situations. First, in Colossians 1, 12 through 14, Paul says, Give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. It couldn't be clearer the differences between what we're, what we're talking about here. There is a dominion of darkness now, but there's a kingdom of light that is breaking in now in our time. And we have been qualified through faith to be a part of this. To be a part of this invasion, to be in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Is this good news or not? Does this make a change? This has changed the world. I can't do justice to describe how dark the world was at the time that Jesus came. I can tell you a couple of facts. One, women were thought of as cattle. The only right that a human was thought to have in the Roman worldview was the right to suicide. Whenever fathers had children, they'd bring the child to him, and if he held it, the child got to live. If he didn't accept it, they would take it out and put it on a hillside and let it die. And this quite often happened with the little baby girls. And there was a whole cottage industry out there of guys who would roam the hillsides where they'd leave these babies to die for exposure, and they would save them and rescue them so that by the ages of 10 or 12, they could turn them into prostitutes and make a profit. That is a dirty, dark world. Pagan worship was about trying to appease some god to get him to do what you wanted to make your crops grow or your wife have children or bless your life. And so they, you know how they supported those temples? Prostitution. They didn't do like me and say, hey, you don't like the sound of this, could you kick in a little? That wasn't their concept of, of having a church service. Their idea of having a church service was they would come in and offer meats, different animals, and sacrifice them to their god. Then they'd take that animal and go cook it in the back, and they would also have prostitutes there, and it would turn into an orgy. The prostitutes weren't there because that was a vocational choice that they liked. They weren't there because they wanted to be. Usually those prostitutes were slaves. And if they didn't have enough slaves, they would ask the local people who worshipped at that temple to turn their children over and serve a certain amount of time, which means that your little boys and your little girls would be there to be used by traveling salesmen. Think about how dark that, what would that do to a family? What would that do to people? Humility. Who doesn't like someone who's humble? It's an attractive thing whenever you see it genuinely. It was thought of as a mental disease or a weakness in the, in the time of Christ. Common courtesy was not common. You know, where people say nice, you know, they say hi and they're pleasant. They didn't do that. Whenever men will hold a, a door open for a woman, these days women are holding it open for me. I don't know what that means, but punctuate that point. <clears throat> it was a dark, nasty, nasty world. We live in a dark world still. We live in this overlap. We're in the last days. 
But there's more light in this world now than there ever has been. Because for 2,000 years, God has been creating again new creations, new image bearers to fill the earth with his glory. We live in a heathen nation. And we talk to other heathen nations and they're having conversations about human rights. That didn't happen before the kingdom of God. I could go on and on and on to talk about the difference that it has made in this world that God has brought his justice and his mercy and his faithfulness back into this world through his image bearers. You're a part of that. You've been privileged to be invited to inherit this kingdom and to be a part of that. Jesus said in Matthew 5.14, you are the light of the world. Light shows up a lot in scriptures. You are the image bearer of God, according to Jesus. He goes on to say, no one takes a candle and puts it under a, under a bushel and hides it. That's stupid. That's not what it's for. A city on a hill can't be hidden. And then he goes on to say, let your light so shine before men, before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your God in heaven, your Father in heaven. In my neighborhood, that's where I spend most of my time, in my neighborhood. I don't think my neighbors are convinced that I'm such a great guy. But they know I'm different. And it's not just the Cubs thing. <laughs> that wouldn't probably, that'd probably convince people other things, right? Maybe a little darkness there. But, uh, but they know I treat my wife different. They watch me refuse to retaliate when I'm mistreated by one neighbor. They watch me do kindness with no hope of kindness being coming back. I don't do that because I'm a good guy. I don't do that because I get off on it. I do that because I'm trying to focus my eyes on Christ and he changes me and I want to act like him. And so a little bit of light comes into my neighborhood and you know what? My neighbors are changing. They aren't as upset with me anymore. In fact, every now and then they kind of give a little preference to me. They're kind of giving it back a little bit. Things are changing in my neighborhood. Some of you can say things are changing in your home. Things are changing in your marriage. Some of you will find that by being an image bearer in the workplace, your workplace changes. I, I, could, I could illustrate that with a story, but I'm taking too much time, I'm sure. So I'm going to get moving here. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. And I'm just about done. Do you remember where I, I talked about in Exodus 19 how God first mentioned a kingdom? And his plan to bring a kingdom to set things right. And of course it didn't happen because Israel failed. They didn't, they didn't obey his voice. They didn't guard the word. They didn't guard the, the, the covenant. Look what Peter says in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. He says, but you are choice, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Doesn't that sound like what God was talking about in Exodus 19? He was saying that he wanted that in Exodus 19. Peter's saying it's here. He's saying it's you. You're his own, pet, his own possession. You're the holy nation. You're the priesthood that God always wanted. You're the light bearers, the image bearers of God. And why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You don't need guilt, folks. You need conviction. Conviction says, I want to be like God. Guilt says, I'm worthless. 
I'm dirty. I'm not good enough. You need conviction. You don't need guilt. It's not even, it doesn't make sense because of the mercy that you've been given. But you've been given a vocation. You are now that kingdom. The kingdom that God wanted to set his creation right. You're a part of it. You've been invited into this. Okay, so here's my four preacher points to get us out of this lesson. What he's just said and what I've been trying to point to all these scriptures. The kingdom of God is good news for a change. And because of the kingdom of God, number one, we are a different kind of people. Not only are we a new kind of human, how many of you guys are fans of the NIV? The NIV will not help you with this particular thing. There's a Greek word called anthropos. Anthropos means what you would think it would mean. Anthropology is based off of this Greek word. Anthropos means mankind or man, humanity. And the NIV consistently renders itself. If you get married, you probably don't have your best self sitting next to you. It's your best man. These words are not interchangeable. And when you start looking for what this new man is about, we're talking about the last Adam. We're talking about the new creation. We're talking about a new kind of human. You're not the person, if you're in Christ, you're not the person you were. You're a different kind of human. Peter says because you're partakers of the divine nature. Now you have God living inside you. That makes you a freak. That makes you a different kind of human. And ultimately the only kind of, in, of human that will be in this coming age. You are a new people, like God said. Number two, because of the kingdom of God, we have a different purpose. The life that we lived before, Paul called an empty way of life. What was it like before you came into the kingdom? Did you have purpose that was bigger than you? Did you have anything that even resembles what we're talking about today available to you? To partner with God in, in, in his new creation. You have a whole new purpose. And that purpose should not be about getting your best life now. Thank you, no, Joel Olstein. We have a purpose of being the kingdom of God and taking light into dark places. Three, we have resurrection power because of the kingdom of God. The same power that brought Jesus back from the grave, which is more than just animating a dead body. This is about actually conquering death for good. That power resides in us. This isn't about how good you can be. But the more I get close to God, the stronger that resemblance is going to be and that power gets unleashed into the world around us. You work in a hateful place, there's resurrection power there to change it. You travel in dark places, there's resurrection power to bring light. Fourth, because of the kingdom of God, we have the promise of eternal life. The promise of eternal life. How many of you guys know what eternal life means? My worldview was that meant that I go to heaven. That I live with God endlessly. That's how it was handed to me. That's not entirely wrong. There's, there's, a, there's a lot of truth in that. But there's actually even something more rich about that. Because those words, eternal life, are the Greek words, aeonius zoe. It literally means life in the age. If you're in Christ, if you've believed him, you have been qualified for the inheritance of this kingdom, the inheritance of the new heaven and the new earth, and to live with him in the new age. That kind of blows the doors off and the ceiling off of this idea of eternal life, doesn't it? 
this is really good news. I want to show you in closing, I want to show you one last verse, a very, very familiar verse, and see if it takes on any new meaning for you. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have Aeonius Zoe. Life in the age to come. Eternal life. I don't know where you are today in your relationship with Christ. I don't know what your concept of the kingdom of God was or its purpose was before you walked in here this morning. If you think I'm telling it wrong, that's great. Nobody has to agree with me. But I've given you a lot of scriptures to to look at and to think through. If you think I'm right, that's great too. Be sure to look at those same scriptures and make sure I'm telling you what's right. There might be a couple of, of things that we might quibble about that I might understand a little differently than you do, but nobody can deny that what God's doing is setting his world right and using his kingdom to functionally change everything. If you're not a part of that, don't leave here today without fixing that. If you need more information, that's fine. Let's sit down and study. If you're ready to make a commitment, that's fine. Let's get it in. Let's get it on. That's what they did in the New Testament. When they heard this good news, they didn't wait. They wanted to identify with this kingdom and put on Christ, and they did it in baptism. We can explain the details of all that later. Do it now. You want to be on this. We don't know when the second coming is coming. We don't know whenever time will be up. You don't want to miss another, another moment of God having control of your life and living in the kingdom of light. So I want to put that out there for you. Um, I don't have a smooth landing for this lesson. I don't have any smooth words to try to get me out of this and, and sound like I can talk well. It, sometimes I get up here and I talk too long. How long have I gone today? I also get accused of getting really excited. Guys, this is why I'm so excited. We don't deserve this deal. If you don't get a tickle inside you looking at this, if you're not excited about this, either I have done a horrible job of explaining it, or there's something seriously wrong with you. Maybe I'm saying it well enough and you're just hearing it wrong. Please, for the love of God. And for who doesn't want this new age? Who doesn't want this restored and corrected creation? Who doesn't want God to get what He deserves? He is a good, loving God. Don't we want to see Him get what He wants back? So if you've come into the kingdom, would you please get serious about walking in the light? Walking towards it. Just one step at a time. You don't have to become Jesus tomorrow or by 6 o'clock this afternoon. Just work on the first thing that's in front of you. Everybody that, that's in this walk knows of one thing that's in front of you that you either need to stop doing or start doing. Just take that step and then see what the next step is. Fix your eyes on Christ because we are at war. Victory day is coming. B-day is coming. We are in the last age. Time is running out. And there's something that's really good that's coming. And folks, we all know people who aren't on this side of this fence. We all know people that are still stuck behind the gates of hell. Lost in the dominion of darkness. Suffering and not even knowing that they don't have to. Would you please take seriously your calling of your vocation to be light bearers? 
to be image bearers and to take the light of Christ into those dark areas and to guard his word so that you can know how to do that better and better, to be transformed by the renewing of your minds and stop being conformed to the image of this world. This is not about how many houses we can own or how new of a car we can drive or how many vacations and how special they are or how we look. That's not Christianity. That's not the important stuff. And yet it's what we get so tempted to take our eyes off. That's more like Adam, the first Adam than the last Adam. Can we just get busy with this? If we do it, we may see a lot more people in these seats. I say may because I don't know how God's going to use people. I don't know where he's going to send them. You may shine light on somebody and never know the, the outcome of that. And God will be grateful for your service. So I want to challenge you, if you are a Christian, to be serious about this image-bearing thing and to get busy doing your part in this invasion, in this revolution. Let's pray, and we'll call it a morning. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for what a gift we, we don't deserve. We've all sinned and fallen so short of your glory. We've been ambassadors of darkness most of the time, more than we've been ambassadors for your kingdom. But yet you've extended the offer even to us. And those of us that have called on your name and switched sides and pledged allegiance to your kingdom. Father, we don't often do the job well. But we want to ask you humbly today to change our worldview. Help us to quit trying to shape this message to fit our worldview. And help us to change our worldview to fit your message. To be more concentrated on what you deserve than what we think we deserve to be more focused on what we give to you than what we get from you. Father, help us to bind together and realize this isn't a solo sport. We are a team. The team is bigger than the people in this building. Father, we want to see you glorified. We want to see your kingdom come more and more. And we want to be excited about the age to come and living with you forever in the home of righteousness the inheritance that you've promised us. Father, help us never let go of these central truths and never forget the big story as we work out the details. We love you, Father, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.